we're in the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 5, and we're in the middle of the Beatitudes. And by way of review, Yeshua is actually telling us what are the blessings for seeking after a life that's pleasing to God. He says, blessed are those who live this way. And this word blessed means secure, content, happy. And we've, we've, we've even put those, wor- those words in instead of, of uh, blessed when we read the verses. We say secure and content. And you become secure and content and happy because when you follow God, you come under His blessing and that makes you secure, content, and happy. He makes you that way. And remember last week we left off with verse 6 and it said, Secure and content are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And we noted what powerful images these, this hunger and thirst There are powerful forces in your life. Hunger and thirst drive you to do things to satisfy that hunger and that thirst. You can do nothing else until you get those things taken care of. And that's the imagery Yeshua is trying to get across to us here. If your life is filled with the pursuit of righteousness, and that cannot be satisfied until you obtain that righteousness, Yeshua says to you that you will be filled. And righteousness is a simple concept, really. It's, it's how you treat your brothers. And it's walking uprightly before God. The other thing that righteousness is in a, in the Hebrew, in a Hebrew context, it's the word zedekah, and it means more than just righteousness as most think of righteousness. It's actually a term for giving. Not tithing, mind you, but giving. God deems it righteous when you... Give to help one another. When you give to see the kingdom advanced. We read our Gospels and sometimes we, fa- sometimes we fail to see just how important this concept of giving was to Yeshua and the disciples. And how much of the Gospel teachings of Yeshua were really about giving. It's here in the Beatitudes... And he says, if we do this, we come under the blessing of God. Later in chapter 6, it comes up in the sermon. Three times, almost the whole of chapter 6 is about giving. Luke 6, Mark 12, Luke 18, the story of the rich young men, the parable of the virgins, the parable of the talents, the widow's offering, Luke 16's parables about the shrewd manager and about the rich man and Lazarus. And we could go on because if we look at those things that directly speak of giving or we look at the things that indirectly are about giving, the amount of material is staggering compared to the rest of what is written in the Gospels. I think one of the more amazing passages about just how happy and secure and content givers are occurs in a story that happens in Acts chapter 10, which we'll read. Beginning with verse 1, it says, There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a Roman army officer in what was called the Italian regiment. He was a devout man, a God-fearer, as was his whole household. And he gave generously to help the Jewish poor and prayed regularly to God 
about one in the afternoon, around uh, one afternoon around three o'clock, he saw clearly in a vision the angel of God coming to him and saying to him, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at the angel, terrified. What is it, sir? He asked. Your prayers, replied the angel, your acts of charity have gone up into God's presence so that he has you on his mind. What we have here is we have the start of the Gentiles coming to know God, coming to know the Messiah, the good news going out to the nations. And we have a man whose name is recorded here for us in Scripture, whose life was used to show the disciples that they were to accept Gentiles as they were. And that the requirements of Torah for non-Jews and for Jews is different. And all of this happened because Cornelius was a man whose life was filled with zedekah, with giving, a life of giving and prayer. Everyone who's ever read the book of Acts has seen this man's name. And he gained access to the kingdom of God because his life was filled with zedekah, with prayer and with giving. And that came up before God and God had him on his mind because of it. Now that's what I call being content and secure and happy. Another of the giving teachings of Yeshua that always amazed me and runs contrary to the, to the way we think in the world is the story of the widow's mite in Mark chapter 12 and verse 41. It says, And Yeshua sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. And calling his disciples to him, Yeshua said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all she had to live on. You see, the point Yeshua makes here, it isn't the amount that you give, it isn't the amount of the gift, but it's always the attitude of the heart of the person that's giving. The widow, though her gift was small, gave more than the others because she gave sacrificially out of her poverty versus the others who gave a small amount of their great wealth. And the thing that always amazes me is that the person with little who gives actually comes has the same opportunity to fall under that same blessing of God as the one who gives some vast amount of money. In fact, when you think about it, the opportunity is, is even greater. And so, understand this. Those who say, I don't have enough to give, don't often realize that they're in a place where you are like the widow. You have a special opportunity to give. And that opportunity is, is great and it brings you under the same blessing. Listen to, it's something that happens again and we can read about it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-4. through 4. It says... And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, 
entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And I I don't want to make this teaching today on one on giving, but I think, you know, maybe we should spend more time preaching about giving, as much time as Yeshua devoted to it. But our next statement in the Beatitudes requires that we have uh, we have to understand the nature of the kingdom, but we also have to understand a concept that we find in Torah that's called Mida Keneged Mida, which means measure for measure. The Lord says this about himself in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 35. He says, You shall, you shall do no injustice in judgment, in the measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales... Honest weights and honest measures. An honest hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God is telling us that he wants us to use accurate weights and measures. So he's telling us that he does the same thing. And he's telling us that the measure you use for others will be the measure he's going to use for you. It's also why I cringe when I hear someone say harsh words in judgment about another person because God will use just as harsh words in judging you. Yeshua tells us the way it'll be in Matthew chapter 7 in just a few chapters. He says this, Judge not that you be not judged for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Mita connected Mita. You find it throughout Scripture, throughout Yeshua's teachings. And we're going to see it in the next few statements. The next statement he says is, Content and secure are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Want mercy? So you should ask yourself then, how merciful are you to others? If you see someone make a mistake, do you treat them kindly or do you pounce on them with both feet? If someone offends you, are you merciful? Are you patient with them? If they come to you and apology and apologize, do you accept the apology or do you question their sincerity? If you do those things, then you're not showing mercy and you are in danger of not receiving mercy yourself. One of the most terrifying verses in the Bible And the extreme example of this is spoken clearly by Yeshua in Matthew chapter 6. He says, But if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a thought that should make most of us tremble. It makes me tremble to think that our forgiveness is dependent on our forgiving others. That's a sobering thought. When you think of this concept of mita connected mita, measure for measure, the measure you use on others is the measure that God is going to use for you because He's holy. And the reason it's staggering because on my walk through life, I see how much unforgiveness there is in the church today. When you become sensitive to evil speech and unforgiveness, you begin to realize just how much there is. If we look at a couple of verses in the Septuagint, we're going to find things very similar that the rabbis translated the Proverbs this way. Listen to what the Septuagint 
uh, Proverbs 17, verse 5 says, he says, He that laughs at the poor provokes him that made him. And he that rejoices at the destruction of another will not be held guiltless. But he that has compassion shall find mercy. Listen to the way the Septuagint translates Proverbs 14, 21. He that dishonors the needy sins, but he that has pity on the poor is most blessed. The Lord himself claims this as one of his attributes. If we look at Exodus 34, verse 6, he says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And so all of this points to the importance of our showing mercy and being generous in our giving to our brothers, both financially and in our compassion toward one another. In verse 8 he says, Content and secure are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart. And to understand this, we need to get a handle on what Yeshua meant by pure. There was a great emphasis in the first century on clean and unclean, pure and impure. You know that you're either pure or you're impure. There's no middle ground. If you study scriptures, you're either pure or you're impure. If you go through the waters of immersion for purity and you come up out of the waters, you're pure until and only until you touch something impure. And then you're pure no longer. And that's why a pure heart takes such diligence on your part. Listen to what Psalm 24, verse 3 through 5 say. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. And so the essence is that it's imperative that we as disciples of Yeshua keep ourselves from impurity. And impurity comes to us in the form of unforgiveness, anger, malice, and so forth. Those things render you unclean as well as the obvious things, sexual things, drunkenness. And there is no middle ground for a pure heart. And I doubt that there are many of us that really have that totally pure heart. So it's something that we need continually need to be working on. You have to look to the Lord to lead your life. Next it says, Content and secure are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Yeshua wouldn't have said peace, He would have said shalom. And here's a case where a word in English is lacking the true meaning of the Hebrew because shalom means a whole lot more than just peace. Peace is the absence of strife. But shalom is all of that plus blessing and comfort. And so with that, understand that we need to to bring blessing into the lives of others if we want to be shalom makers. When we see people who are in need, through no wrongdoing of their own, we need to open our hearts and bless them to the measure that we're able to. Yeshua, the Prince of Peace, came and gave everything so that He could bring shalom into the lives of others. And when we use the things that we have 
to bring shalom into the lives of others, then we look like the Son of God. We actually become sons of God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10 says, Secure and content are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Content and secure are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here we go again. How can this be? But because the kingdom of heaven is such a topsy-turvy place and the first are last and the last are first, if you're persecuted in this life, you're going to have peace and comfort in the world to come. But not only that, if you just use a little wisdom and understanding here, you'll count it as joy in this life because you know that things are going to be different in the world to come. And this life is just fleeting. It's just vapor. This world is nothing compared to what lies ahead. If you make a stand for righteousness, for what is right in God's sight in this world, I can guarantee you that you'll be persecuted. Those he spoke these words to are a perfect example of that. In the life of Messiah's study, we looked at what happened to the apostles, to the Nazarenes. But not only that, if you, like I say, if you were in the life of these early believers class, you saw that the generations that followed those disciples that were called the Nazarenes were also persecuted and martyred. And think of how great their reward will be. While the church in the West or Rome moved into the era of Hellenism and paganism, they stayed themselves on the Word of God and lived lives that, the God, that God would have them live. They didn't succumb to a blending of paganism in the church. They stayed the course of true disciples of the Master, keeping the Sabbath, keeping the festivals of the Lord, as did the Master. They were zealous for the Torah, as was the Master and the disciples. And they paid the price for that. And I have no doubt that they now enjoy the kingdom of heaven. Think about it. We're the Holy One's children. His creation. Think of it. If Think of a mother or a father seeing their, their child persecuted for doing what they told them to do. Or persecuted because they were doing what is right. Wouldn't that mother run to that child to comfort that child? Wouldn't the father run to that child to comfort that child? How much more the Holy One of Israel, the father of us all. The Nazarenes, really, when you studied out, they did nothing but live as God instructed them to live and they suffered for it. And let me say this. If you show someone their error just by the way you live, just by the things that you do as the Nazarenes did, you're going to make them mad. And that's exactly what happened. We have some here. I know that you've made a stand for what is right in your life and you're still suffering for it. Well, they made people mad for uncovering deception and they suffered for it. Let's read on in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 11. Whenever, whatever town or village you enter, 
Search for someone worthy person there and stay at that person's house until you leave. And as you enter the as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If if the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. Let your shalom, your blessing rest on it. If it is not, let your shalom return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for that town. The next thing, he's going to make a couple of statements to the disciples that are kind of hard statements. And he says this in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if that salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot of men. So what does he tell us here? He's speaking to his disciples, and he tells his disciples, you know, you're the salt of the earth. And salt, what does it do? It makes food better. It makes it more flavorful, just as peacemakers make life more flavorful for the poor on earth, make life better. Just as those who mourn and comfort make life more bearable for those who are suffering at a time of loss. And just as those who are merciful and those who are peacemakers make life safe for others, a life of blessing for others. Salt is something that preserves. Salt, uh, the salt of the earth is a preservative. And if we're the salt of the earth, we give hope to others. But if salt loses its saltiness, then it's good for nothing. And we as disciples of Yeshua, if we lose sight of who Yeshua is, and we fail to live lives as he teaches us to live, then what Yeshua is saying, we're good for nothing. Again, the symbolism here, when understood, can almost be terrifying. If you're not practicing the things mentioned above. If you don't make Yeshua your rabbi and learn your lessons well, then what kind of a witness will you be? 85% of the population of this country calls themselves Christians. And if you look at that word in a Bible dictionary, it means followers of Messiah. That's what it means in a Bible dictionary. Followers of Messiah. The problem is, of that 85%, maybe only 5% of those are actually the salt of the earth. Actually disciples of Yeshua. 5%. And what do the others do? Well, they give a black eye to the Messiah. They're salt that's lost its flavor. All the qualities are gone. They are those who are worth nothing but to be trampled underfoot. And we find the same symbolism and lesson in the parable of the virgins. All of the virgins had lamps. The lamp is symbolic of the Word of God. And only half had oil for their lamps. And we'll see when we look at the parables in a few weeks in our, our Friday night services... When we begin to study the parables, that oil represents good deeds, those things that you did according to God's Word. So everybody had the lamp or the Torah, but only half put it to work. Only half had good deeds. The point being, if you don't put these things in practice, 
then just as doing them brings blessing into your life, brings the blessing of God into your life, not doing them serves to judge you and is going to bring about the wrath of God in your life. Amen? Finally, he says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He says, You're the light of the world. And And what I want you to do is think of this through the lens of being a disciple of Yeshua, the kind of disciple we've spoken of in the past few weeks. The one who spends his life becoming like his rabbi, his teacher, his father, his master. Who learned his lessons well and has become a perfect copy of his teacher. Nothing added, nothing omitted. And with all of that in mind, why would Yeshua say this? Listen to what John said of Yeshua. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. He was the life, and the life was the light of men. Yeshua tells us, or John tells us, that Yeshua was the light of men. Listen to what Yeshua says of Himself in John chapter 8. When Yeshua spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so again, friends, Yeshua is telling us that as disciples, that when we learn His words and His actions, when we're led of the Spirit of God and display compassion, mercy, and love for His creation, we will have the light of life and will never walk in darkness. But not only that, just as Yeshua was a light to the world, so too do we become lights in the world. When we become His disciples, not just those who say, I believe in Jesus, like 85% of the people in the country, yeah, I'm a Christian. But when we're true disciples then we become lights to the world. So let's continue where we left off last week and let's become disciples, listening carefully to the voice of Rabbi Yeshua, putting His words in our hearts and let's be lights to those, to a world in darkness and let's be salt that makes life more palatable for those less fortunate in ourselves. Let's be merciful and compassionate Let's be copies of our rabbi. Amen? Amen. You can bring the worship team back up.